0: Right now on Matter of Fact, parents are desperate to find affordable childcare.
1: You can't get a job if you don't have childcare.
0: As the industry struggles to find workers.
1: When Taco Bell is starting you off at $15 an hour, I can't do that.
0: How will the nation fully recover if we can't provide care for America's children? Plus, who will help the women being released
2: from prisons and jails? People believe That family will house you. But if your your family is in poverty like mine, they're barely surviving.
3: And... There was no way that I would expect a white police officer to get invested in my life as a black, violent criminal. I saw something a little different in him.
0: The story of an unlikely friendship... (laughs) Glad to call you my friend. ...and how it transformed their lives.
4: Soledad O'Brien, welcome to Matter of Fact. Finding and affording childcare has become a nightmare for families. The pandemic worsening an already crumbling system. In 2020, the national yearly average cost for childcare was about $10,200 per family. That's a lot of money, but it still doesn't help daycare providers cover their costs for staff, for food, for the facility. And daycare employees continue to be some of the lowest paid workers in America, sometimes making little more than minimum wage. Our correspondent, Laura Chavez, traveled to Clinton, Mississippi, to talk to one family and a daycare provider, both struggling to make it work. The earth. The earth,
5: yes. My husband is active duty military, and so we moved to Mississippi about a year and a half.
6: Illy Moreno, her husband Manuel, who's currently overseas, and their three-year-old son Sebastian moved from Dallas to Clinton, Mississippi for a new assignment with the Army. Who did you know in the area when you moved here? Absolutely nobody. And that happens every time we move.
5: Did Pete cry?
6: (laughs) Living off base in a community where they don't have a support system to fall back on, Illy knew finding childcare for Sebastian was essential. Nobody wanted to take him because, you know, childcare is very limited in the area. One additional complication: Sebastian is on the autism spectrum. I toured Five or more schools, preschools. And, you know,
5: as soon as I said, you know, he has some needs, he needs some accommodations, the response was like, you know, we're not able to provide what he needs. And so it was very stressful.
6: Adding to the stress, Illy was job hunting, looking for work as a psychotherapist in a position similar to the one she left behind.
5: It's hard because it has to happen simultaneously. You can't get a job if you don't have childcare. How do you even have the time to apply and do all
6: this process and the interviews and all that if you don't have childcare? Illy isn't alone. Parents in Clinton, a city of about 25,000, are struggling to find pre-elementary childcare at any of the city's 15 facilities. Providers like Lisa Daniel Hollingshead, the owner of Funtime Preschool, know they're all feeling the pandemic fallout. Can you tell me how the pandemic impacted your time here at Funtime?
1: So we had a total of almost 400 children and we went from that enrollment to like 53 or 63, like in a matter of two weeks.
6: This drop in attendance made it tough for Funtime.
1: It was a struggle. We had some capital set aside that floated us until we were able to get the PPP loans. So a lot of our teachers, a lot of our staff took a voluntary leave of absence because of health issues, and they were not comfortable working in person.
6: Lisa hopes to be fully staffed again soon, but finding qualified workers is tough with her financial constraints. Lisa's employees make between $13 and $14 an hour, which is above the state's minimum wage of seven twenty-five. dollars But to keep employee pay and other costs where they are, families pay about $170 per week per child,
1: when Taco Bell is starting you off at fifteen dollars an hour, I can't do that without increasing tuition on our families. And our families are not in a position to pay more for child care.
6: Across the US, not being able to pay qualified employees more money makes hiring difficult. And that's a major issue, according to Dr. Lynette Fraga, the CEO of Childcare Aware of America. Even before the pandemic, we really did not have enough early care and education programs to meet the needs of parents who wanted to work or go back to school. We saw upwards of 16,000 early care and education programs close permanently. There is also a real significant challenge in the price of care and the access to that care. And there are significant challenges in supporting the workforce. What's the solution? The first part that we need to address in order to come to a solution is to ensure that we are aware and we acknowledge that child care is an issue that everyone needs to focus on. At any given time, Funtime has a 100-person waiting list of kids they can't help due to staffing issues.
1: We're in a good place where people want our services, um, but if we're not able to provide those services, they're gonna go elsewhere.
7: Which one is next?
6: Which brings us back to Illy and Sebastian. After seven months on a wait list, Funtime was able to secure a spot for Sebastian. It brings a lot of life work balance to our life and a lot more you know, quality of life overall. In Clinton, Mississippi, for Matter of Fact, I'm Laura Chavez. Great job, Hi. amazing, yes! Next on Matter of Fact, women coming out of prison,
0: struggling to find a place to call home, Nobody wants to rent to you. How are you going to have a place to live without someone renting to you? See the innovative housing solution created by other formerly incarcerated women. And later, what happens to that hotel soap once you check out? We'll show you how one man's idea is helping clean the world.
4: Women in prison is growing. Each year, about 1.9 million are released from prisons and jails. When they leave the criminal justice system, they're at high risk of becoming homeless. In fact, they're about 10 times more likely to be homeless than the general public. A handful of programs around the country are trying to meet the needs of women who are returning to their communities. Some of the most innovative are run by formerly incarcerated people. I traveled to New Orleans to see Operation Restoration and talked with its housing director, Dolphinette Martin, a single mom of five who was arrested four times for shoplifting and spent almost eight years in prison.
2: People believe that family will house you, Mm -hmm. clothe you, Mm -hmm. feed you, Mm -hmm. give you money, but if you're, your family is in poverty, like mine, they're barely surviving, and you're a burden that's added. And then you begin to feel like a burden that's added. Because you are. You're a burden, right? The strain is there.
4: Two years ago, Operation Restoration partnered with the Ladies of Hope Ministries to open Hope House NOLA five bedrooms, a kitchen, and common gathering spaces, even a pool. Newly released women can stay up to a year as they get back on their feet.
2: Let's be honest. Women, especially black women, we're expected to come out, get your children, and do the right thing. And what's the right thing? For me, the right thing was staying out of prison, no matter.
4: That's what she wants for other women. And it starts, she believes, with a place like Hope House. 15 women have lived here since it opened two years ago. None have returned to prison. And last month, 10 years after her release from prison, Martin closed on her own home. Proof, she believes, that anything is possible.
2: My last time in prison was my last time in prison. And the best way to stay here to keep helping the women that's coming behind me. I have to be here. We have to be here.
4: Topeka Sam is the founder of the Ladies of Hope Ministries, one of the nonprofit organizations behind Hope House NOLA. It's so nice to have you on the program. So, Topeka, when I was in New Orleans, you were talking to the women about the need for family support and just how, really critical it is for successful transitions.
7: Louisiana is one of the top states in the, in, well actually top places in the world that have the highest uh, people per capita in prison and jail. And when you think about the deep South and you think about the lack of resources and opportunities anyway, and how much uh, minimum wages and all the things, you think, how can we help women, specifically those who are transitioning from you know state violence, whether it's incarceration, sexual, uh, abuse, physical abuse, sex and human trafficking, aging out of foster care, any of these systems, what they need in order to land. And that is safe and affordable housing. And so not only was it important for us to do what we do, great, which is housing, but also partner with other organizations led by previously incarcerated people who have been successful in their reentry, because they can also help to shape and give hope to other sisters.
4: But it sounds like a lot of women who are coming out of incarceration actually don't have that at all.
7: That's right. When you don't have that family or that strong foundation, that you're able to create that for sisters. And so that's what I've done. I've created um, a community for sisters to be able to come to when they're in prison and reach out to us. Uh, we reach out through the case managers, reentry coordinators and specialists to let them know that we're here. And so if they need housing, we'll connect them to that.
4: What do you think is needed to keep women who are uh, coming out of incarceration from ending up on the streets, homeless?
7: The way that I see it is that with any of us, right, we need to have our basic human rights met. So it's safe and affordable housing first. It's access to healthy food. Um, you know, how am I going to eat? How am I going to feed myself or even my children? It's an equitable opportunity: workforce development, career training, growth-focused opportunity and decision-making roles in businesses, changing the idea of diversity and inclusion to make sure that we're including not only people based on race, religion, and gender identity, but people also with lived experiences. You know, Access to quality healthcare. All of these are things that each individual should have as a basic human right in this country. Um, And so previously incarcerated women want the same thing.
4: Topeka Sam, Topeka, thank you for your time. I appreciate it.
7: Thank you, I appreciate you.
4: Ahead on Matter of Fact. A 30-year
0: friendship between a police officer and a man he arrested. You've got to have compassion. Uh, If we don't, things won't change. Their unlikely bond and the lessons they've learned.
4: We have an update now on the story of an unlikely friendship between a police officer and the man he arrested, one that's withstood a murder trial, prison time, and has lasted nearly three decades. Before we get to that update though, here's our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, with their remarkable story.
8: I kinda grew up in the Leave it to Beaver family, the white picket fence and and everything else, and was uh, fortunate to have great parents.
3: So I came from a legacy of murderers, in my family, addiction, uh, uh, alcoholism, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse. You're scared all the time.
8: The story of Dana Marsh and Jerrell Jones begins here at an apartment complex just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, nearly 30 years ago.
3: I used to deal drugs right here.
8: Dana, then a police officer with just one year on the job, arrested Jarrell for disorderly conduct, the 24-year-old a drug dealer and addict with a long rap sheet.
3: After that, Dana would see me on the street. I'd be selling drugs or buying drugs, maybe, and he would stop the car, hit the lights and pat me down and then start talking to me about changing my life. I saw something a little different in him. I can't explain it, don't know why.
8: Jarrell, eventually accepting the police officer's help, he left for his hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, with a bus ticket Dana bought him.
3: This would have been the backyard. You would come in front of the backyard, directly into the kitchen.
8: But it didn't take long for Jarrell's troubled past to catch up with him. Staying in his great-grandmother's house, today an empty lot, he had a conflict with her husband and stabbed him to death.
3: It was surreal, I felt like. I couldn't believe I had done this. And um, I, stood, I sat there shaking. And then I basically uh, made a decision. I was going to turn myself in. And I called Dana and told him that I had just killed a man.
8: He said, uh, I've got to take accountability. Uh, this is the only thing that I can do to change my life. Despite Dana testifying on his behalf, Jarrell was sentenced to life in prison. He was going through a lot of remorse, but he also had realized that the only way that he could make his life worth something is helping those that were coming in that were gonna be able to get back out. Moving through prisons in four states, that's what Jarrell did, taking accountability classes, studying psychology and counseling other inmates. From the outside, Dana, busy with a young family, continued to support him.
3: He visited, you know, sent money, went to my, my, my hearings. Whatever he could do, he did. You know, He treated me like a brother.
8: After 20 years behind bars, Jarrell's impact on others earning him his release. Words
3: are spirit and words are life.
8: Jarrell's promise helping neighborhoods like the one in which he grew up heal. His work as a community leader now attracting the attention of Birmingham's top cops and prosecutors, and always there, his friend Dana Marsh. What would you tell a young police officer who might be encountering the same situation today?
3: You've gotta have compassion. Uh, If we don't, things won't change. We learn that from each other then, yeah. Because his compassion towards me translated to my compassion towards others. Father, we thank you for the food we're about to receive. I was a violent criminal. Mm-hmm. And to think that, uh, you know, that this is what redemption looks like, you know, sitting at the table with the, the actual police officer that arrested you. Miracles are real. And so toast to miracles. Glad to call you my friend. Thank you. Yes,
8: sir. In Fayetteville, Georgia, for matter of fact, I'm Jessica Gomez.
4: Now to our Matter of Fact update about this story. Recently, the Montgomery County Board of Parole pardoned Jarrell Jones. As for his (laughs) friendship with Dana Marsh, they say it's still going strong. Coming up
0: on Matter of Fact, 78,000 Afghans are making new lives in the U.S. What you can do to help them start over in America. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, Sign up for our newsletter at MatterOfFact.tv.
4: Welcome back to Matter of Fact. Last week in Afghanistan, the Taliban ordered women back behind the veil, issuing a statement requiring, quote, all respectable Afghan women to wear a hijab. Within days, Afghan women took to the streets in protest. It's just one more restriction placed on women since the Taliban took over last August. This week, a State Department spokesperson told us almost 78,000 Afghans are in the United States. The largest numbers have moved to Northern Virginia, the DC area, Northern California, and Texas. The State Department's sponsor circle program is one way for Americans to help Afghan families. Here's how it works. Five or more adults form a support group for a family. The circles must raise a minimum of $2,275 and clear background checks. They pledge to provide cash support, food, and shelter to families for at least 90 days. They also help with English classes and job searches. The circles are operating in 25 states. In addition, a network of U.S. companies, universities, nonprofits, and churches are also helping with resettlement.
0: Next on Matter of Fact, a tech exec wondered what happens to those little hotel soap bars left behind? How an experiment in his garage launched a global effort to help children in need.
4: That hotel soap you leave behind after checkout now has a second life, saving the world. Thanks to Sean Seipler, who got the idea to recycle used hotel soap back in 2008. He convinced several hotels in the Orlando area to donate the soap. And then, with the help of his friends, they cut off the used parts, melted it down, and made new soap. That's when Seipler created Clean the World and started donating the soap to countries where children die from hygiene-related illnesses. Since 2009, Clean the World has given out 68 million bars of soap in 127 countries. Now they have more than 8,000 hotel partners. So far, they've kept 23 million pounds of plastic and soap waste out of landfills. It's a clean solution to a dirty problem. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'll see you back here next week.
0: If you missed our top stories about the childcare shortage affecting America's families, the challenges facing women re-entering society after prison and jail, an unlikely friendship that changed lives, and an update on Afghans building lives in the U.S., go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider, Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto and YouTube.